Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. As the spread of novel coronavirus grows in the United States, many states find themselves in need of much more medical equipment. Things like ventilators and hospital beds, but also protective equipment for workers like masks and gloves. Yet for most states, getting that equipment has not been easy. Requests have begun to outweigh supply, and many states complain there's a lack of guidance about how they can secure this life-saving supplies. Governors are making increasingly frantic requests to the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, for materials. State and congressional leaders are flooding FEMA with calls seeking clarity about how resources will be allocated. Several calls have been made straight to the president himself. And some governors seem to have better luck on those calls than others. While some states like Oklahoma and Kentucky have received more of some equipment than they even requested, others like Illinois, Massachusetts, and Maine have secured only a fraction of their requests. This disparity has led many state officials to raise the question of whether Republican states are receiving more favorable treatment from the federal government during this crisis. And while there's no direct evidence that that's the case, President Trump has contributed to a sense that politics could be a factor. Specifically, Trump has publicly attacked Democratic governors who criticize his handling of the public health crisis. So, Is there political bias in who gets resources now? Who exactly controls the way resources are allocated in an emergency? And what happens when state health departments and hospitals are left without the supplies they so desperately need? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. To find out what resources hospitals need right now, I talked to Dr. Paul Bittinger, the chief of the Emergency Preparedness Division at Massachusetts General Hospital. Later on the show, White House reporter Tolu Oluwanipa discusses President Trump's inconsistent process for deciding to distribute resources across the country. But first, Dr. Bittinger on what it's like to work in emergency preparedness for a hospital during an emergency. So my days are spent in our emergency operations center with meetings and phone calls and a lot of work to try and make sure that our healthcare system is is remaining ready to take care of all the patients uh, who show up either possibly with COVID or with COVID uh, or with any other condition that needs our care. And therefore, you're a great person to help us understand resource allocation across the U.S. during this crisis. Before we dive into the details of how states and hospitals are acquiring resources, I want to just define resources first. What medical resource needs exist across the U.S. at this point? Well, classically in emergency management, when people talk about resources, we we sometimes talk about uh, four S's. So staff are very much a resource. And so we need to make sure we have enough staff of the right kinds of uh, training to care for our patients. Stuff, which are the physical resources, that's what's uh, often talked about most, whether it's personal protective equipment or ventilators or others. 
space. You actually have to have appropriate spaces to be able to care for patients, either that support infection control or big enough, or in the case of ventilators that have piping that will get enough oxygen flow to the ventilator. And then lastly, the fourth S is is a system, is a way to tie it all together. So staff, stuff, space, and system are the classic four S's of, of resource management. And how many of these four S's come from the federal government level? How many of these things do states and hospitals receive from the federal government? So I think it it always depends on the event and also, frankly, depends on the need. The system actually builds the other direction. It builds from local up. And so the expectation of the system is always that local entities, individual hospitals or hospital systems will do everything they can on their own, working with either partners or other suppliers or vendors. When that is exhausted, they work with uh, partners in their region. In the last few years, the nation has built up a system of healthcare coalitions, which are groups of hospitals and other healthcare uh, providers. They report up to a state system, states report up to regional uh, parts of the federal system, and then ultimately to the federal government. So uh, the overall principle is is that uh, you try and solve the resource need at the lowest possible level, and then when that's exhausted, you move up the chain. And yet the U.S. is not in a position where we have enough medical supplies across the country in all hospitals. What has the experience been like right now in trying to acquire necessary medical supplies for hospitals at this unprecedented time? I think what's really hardest about this pandemic is is twofold. Uh, one is that ultimately we just didn't have sufficient amounts of personal protective equipment nationally to be able to meet the needs of the outbreak. That really, although in 2009 we saw that we had shortfalls in N95s, this was the H1N1, the flu pandemic that we saw back in 2009, we unfortunately didn't take advantage of the opportunity to manufacture more, to, to, to be able to turn on manufacturing, to ramp up to the needs that, that we face. I think when you look at something like this across the entire nation, there probably isn't a warehouse big enough to meet the needs of all the hospitals, all the healthcare providers for, for a situation like this. But to have manufacturing facilities, to have plans, to have ways to instantly retool and push out uh, large-scale personal protective equipment manufacturing is something that I think that many of us regret looking back. But in terms of stockpiles otherwise, what is uh, most challenging about this event is that it really is affecting the whole country. And much of what was intended, I think, in the strategic national stockpile was to support regions affected by hurricanes or other disasters. And it's it's just hard when you have a nation as large as ours to have uh, sufficient stockpiles on hand that will last us through three months worth of national u- utilization at many, many, many times our, our baseline use. So then at your sort of hyper-local level at Mass General, what kinds of equipment or supplies are hard to come by right now? So certainly personal protective equipment is at the top of the list. We ourselves, looking forward years ago to to this possibility, created our own warehouse, our own stockpile. So we have for years maintained a cache of, of supplies that focuses on personal protective equipment with gowns, gloves, N95 respirators, masks. But we targeted for that cache about two weeks worth of the worst of the pandemic because, again, that cache costs us hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to acquire and many tens of thousands of dollars every year just to maintain just a warehouse. And so it's really cost prohibitive to try and maintain three months worth of supplies uh, in a warehouse. But we have had it. We've used it. We've drawn down uh, those resources. Other things we've not drawn down on are things like IV fluids or respiratory supplies. But in addition to personal protective equipment, which again, I think is paramount because we have to be able to protect our workforce, ventilators are the next. And we have maintained a, a good safety supply 
five ventilators, but even with what we have, we've been trying to acquire about 200 more ventilators as part of our response plan now. This started a couple of months ago when we saw uh, the COVID outbreak worsening, and we have taken delivery of some, but we, ha- we haven't received all of the ventilators that we're trying to acquire. What, a, what is the reason that you're not able to get those additional ventilators? Does it escalate all the way up to the federal government or is it something going on at the state level? So, so what we do, uh, again, is, is try through our own supply chains first. So all of our efforts to get those 200 have been through purchasing or rental agreements with companies. And some of this is, is like the personal protective equipment challenge where the companies themselves are getting orders from all over the nation and really all over the world. We have not yet made a request to the state or federal government for ventilators. But we think that we are, in the next two to three weeks, going to be facing the the steepest part of our curve with patients presenting. And so I think it is possible, as this progresses, that our hospitals will need to to make a request for either state or federal ventilator supply. So would you say that right now Mass General is prepared for those next two weeks? Are you prepared for what's to come in this crisis? I I think we're all very, very nervous uh, looking at what's ahead of us. We have plans uh, here at Mass General to double our intensive care unit capacity from 150 beds, which is already among the largest sets of intensive care unit capabilities in New England. But we can double it up to about 300 by reallocating staff with the new ventilators uh, that we're trying to acquire with using uh, operating room anesthesia machines for for ventilators, other strategies. And uh, as we've been doing modeling, we, we have a very talented healthcare systems engineering group that's been helping us to model our experience and project when the peak is going to occur as well as how large it's going to be. We, we think that we can rise to meet the needs uh, of the challenges right in front of us, but there's really no margin for, for safety with our projections that we need every single person, every single piece of equipment we have. And as an emergency planner, that doesn't make me comfortable. So I think, you know, we, we have to keep trying to, to make sure that if, if the outbreak is somewhat worse than we're projecting, or if some of the machines don't work that we have, that we still have a safe margin so we can deliver care. Are there inequities in who's able to acquire the equipment, what kind of hospitals can get the things they need, or in what specific states people are able to acquire materials that they need? I, I think you have to acknowledge the fact that larger hospital systems are able to have uh, greater margins of safety. Uh, you know, the fact that that our system was able to acquire uh, and sustain a, a cache of supplies something that's out of reach of a small hospital without similar resources. So I think it is absolutely harder for smaller hospitals that are not affiliated with larger groups, and that does create a disparity. I think in terms of how resources are distributed at the state or the federal level, a lot of that, of course, really is independent of the kind of hospital, and it's really depending on the need. I think one thing that we're continually trying to improve is how we share data so that we know truly what the need is. Giving an example, with ventilators, we've been doing a lot of work within our system to make sure that not just we know where the ventilators are, but we know that they can be used at a receiving hospital. What that means is they have to have the respiratory therapist, the critical care nurse, the critical care physician, the space, the oxygen flow to effectively use that ventilator in patient care once they've expanded outside the walls of their traditional ICUs. And that's, that's that kind of information that, that is hard to get, uh, but you have to put a lot of effort into knowing so that you know that you'll actually save lives with deploying the resources in the way you want. Now, you've touched on this, but if you could design a perfect path from this point forward to ensure that hospitals have the supplies they need, do you see one? How do we get there? 
I, I think what we need to have is transparent mapping of where the needs are as well as where the capabilities are. And we need transparent mapping of what the resources are that are that are available so that using governmental experts and frankly pairing them up with, with medical experts to make decisions about where they most need to go, that that system can work efficiently. Government has the responsibility, has the authority to make sure that the resources are fairly and evenly distributed. But often you really need the expertise of, say, a critical care physician or a respiratory therapist to know whether a ventilator can end up in a hospital that, that, that can use it appropriately and that, again, has the right staffing to be able to manage the patient on the ventilator. That's a complex, complex math and requires uh, some, some detailed partnerships. But I think in terms of both uh, the supply and demand side, better quality data, as well as in the middle, really good partnerships between government and, and the healthcare sector are what's required. And I think there's a lot that's going on to try and, and make that happen, at least in some parts of the country right now. So you've obviously spent your career studying much of this, studying emergency preparedness. When you look at this moment in American history, how does it compare to what model showed you, what you expected, maybe what you thought you might see in your lifetime? How does this fit in? So I, I have to say this is especially challenging as a disaster planner because this really is something that I've been planning for and thinking about for almost two decades. And I think when we've talked about the range of, of challenges that we think we might face, we use sort of a 1918 influenza scenario as one of our worst possible cases and, and have modeling of the impact on the healthcare system. And I think it's probably a normal human tendency to think that, that maybe what will happen will be more in the middle of the road, you know, at a moderate scenario rather than a more severe. And I, I think I have been surprised uh, by how much of, of what we've seen over the last couple of months has followed a severe scenario. I've been unfortunately surprised by um, how much faster things have come than, than almost anybody thought they, they would evolve. And I, I think we've all been surprised that parts of this infectious disease outbreak have really not followed the rules that we thought we were going to play by. The degree of asymptomatic transmission with COVID has affected how quickly it's gone through communities and it's caused really unprecedented challenges for the, the safety of, of, again, communities, but the healthcare workforce in particular. And so it's, it's made us reconsider some of our old infection control dogma, some of uh, what we we thought we knew about how to best uh, manage a large-scale infectious disease response. That's been unfortunate, I think, on the plus side, uh, the way in which the healthcare community has tried to rise to the challenge, the way the scientific community is sharing data and the speed with which lessons learned in one uh, country are shared elsewhere. That That's the positive side of what's uh, what surprised me. So, you know, there there are good things that, that as, as fast as the disease has spread, knowledge and, and best practices are, are also uh, spreading. And that's what we're going to need to get through this. That's such a positive note. I have to ask you one more negative question. As you watch the spread of this virus here in the U.S., what, what keeps you up at night? I, I think what keeps me up at night is is the what ifs, is the planning. Uh, you know, we still are a couple of weeks uh, away from the peak. And until we know uh, what the peak of illness is, how many people need to be hospitalized, how many people need critical care, how many people need ventilators, and how we can best protect our, our healthcare workforce throughout all of this. Those are the things that keep me up at night. It, it sounds like it may not be true, but but I literally wake up every single morning planning. I, 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 I My alarm goes off and my head is already thinking, about three things that we need to be working on today. And I, I think until we know that we have successfully risen to each one of these challenges in front of us, there's, there's not going to be a lot of sleep. 
On the ground, hospitals across the country, like Dr. Bittinger describes at Mass General, are working to ensure that they have the resources they need to safely treat a likely influx of COVID patients in the weeks ahead. While Mass General is still working on acquiring equipment through their pre-existing supply chains, many hospitals around the country have escalated their equipment requests beyond the state to the federal levels. The Washington Post's White House reporter Tolu Olurunipa explained how decisions are made at the federal level about where to send much-needed resources. Can you explain what this national stockpile is and how FEMA has the power to pull from it and, and distribute from it? Yeah, the National Stockpile is a series of warehouses around the country filled with all kinds of equipment that the country would need in the middle of a national emergency, whether it's during a hurricane or a pandemic. This is life-saving medical equipment for hospitals and for patients that could be used at a moment's notice by the various states. It's set up in a way that states apply for material from it, and FEMA and the federal government are able to approve those applications and send those materials out relatively quickly from warehouses that are already in place around the country. So if something happened in a certain state, they would be able to get access to some of the materials within a warehouse close by and start deploying those materials as quickly as possible. It's a stockpile that has had millions of masks and other equipment, but it's finding itself really tasked by this very, very unprecedented crisis in which several states at once are asking for this equipment and it just does not appear that there is enough equipment in the stockpile to meet the demand and to meet the need of several of these states. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. At the same time. Normally, how are emergency medical supplies allocated by the federal government? Are they distributed only through FEMA, or, or are there other agencies involved? It has changed a lot over the last few years. Uh, a couple of years ago, this was moved to HHS, the Health and Human Services Department, and they took over a lot of the process, but they started being in control during the beginning of the coronavirus crisis. And over the last two weeks, the Trump administration has shifted control over to FEMA. And so the process that started with states working with with the HHS department, now they're working with FEMA. And that's somewhat added to the sense of confusion, even though a lot of states have said that FEMA has done a better job than HHS. They've had to work with a lot of different officials in different departments over the past month as this process has played out. What criteria does FEMA use to make decisions about which states get certain equipment? FEMA has said that they use a number of different factors, everything from the state's population to the state's existing amount of resources to the trend in terms of the risk curve for some of these states that are seeing a large number of coronavirus patients. They say they put all of this into some kind of formula and that determines how much equipment a state gets. And that's led to some very strange outcomes in which some states have gotten a very small fraction of what they've applied for and requested. And some states have gotten more than what they asked for in certain items. And the formula that's being used have not has not been publicized. We've just heard from FEMA and we've heard from the Trump administration sort of 
broadly give an outline of what they used, but we have not seen a specific formula. And we've also heard from some Trump administration officials that the president sometimes gets involved in the process by promising a governor something over the phone, and then FEMA has to backfill that promise and make sure that whatever was promised by the president, which would have been outside of the normal formula and outside of the normal decision-making process, gets fulfilled. And so some governors have had direct access to the president and have been able to get access to some of the equipment outside of the normal chain of command and the normal process. And that has led to even more confusion and more concern that politics and friendships with the president may be playing a role in who gets access to what equipment. Help me understand how unusual that is. How would a governor normally request medical supplies they need from the federal government in an emergency? There have always been examples of governors speaking to presidents in the middle of a national emergency and sort of asking them to prod things along and say, my state needs X, Y, Z. And you could expect the president to get on the phone with their FEMA administrator and say, listen, I just got off the phone with this governor and he needs a lot. Let's do what we can to try to move the process along more quickly. The difference here is that this is a multi-state emergency where states are competing for these products and the fact that some states have close relationships with the president and can get the president on the phone has meant that they have been able to fare better in the middle of a national emergency. That is very unusual and very disturbing to a number of officials who feel that politics should not be at play in the middle of a public health emergency. How much power then does the president have to override FEMA in terms of fulfilling governor's requests? If he says something, does it then become real? Yeah, the president has basically unlimited power over this process. Whatever he wants to happen within his administration, at his FEMA department, essentially, he can make happen. And there's no one who can really question that authority. There's no law saying that FEMA has to use a certain formula or has to allocate its supplies in a certain way. The president has pretty strong discretion over this process. And we've also heard FEMA push back and say that there are also Republican states that have not been able to get everything that they've asked for, that there's no partisan leanings here in terms of how the stockpile is being administered. That's their defense. And they say that, you know, the president hasn't had this heavy hand in terms of trying to give products only to his friendly states and only to his the governors that he likes. But that has not allayed the concerns of a lot of these governors who just want to get access to some of this life-saving equipment and have had a really hard time doing so. Your reporting indicates, as you've said here, that perhaps Trump is showing favoritism in terms of resources to certain states. Can you explain what your reporting has found may be key determinants for which states' needs Trump is prioritizing? What criteria is he using for providing material to states? It's very random, and that's been one of the toughest things for some of these governors, not knowing how to crack the code. In some cases, it's really a matter of these personal relationships, which are very important to President Trump, and him sort of following his gut after hearing directly from some of these governors. And to be fair to the president, he has been on the phone with a lot of governors. He hasn't only spoken to Republican governors. He's spoken to the governor of New York and California and several other Democratic-led states and He, in some cases, has asked FEMA to fulfill their request as well. So it really is based on those personal relationships. One thing the president has said is that he wants governors to be appreciative of him publicly. And that has sort of 
explain some of his approach to certain states that if governors complain or if they describe the federal response as lagging, then he is less likely to speak to them over the phone, which in turn could mean that they would be less likely to get some some kind of presidential intervention on their behalf within this process. And on top of those things, is the president making any decisions about states that can potentially offer him advantages in the 2020 election? So states like Florida, for example, is that within the power of the president? Essentially, how does it compare to the kinds of political calculations presidents make all the time about certain resource allocations or relationships with certain states that could help them politically? Yeah, well, that's the allegation, especially with Florida, who received 100 percent of its requests three days after it first made a request. And that first request came several days after other states had been waiting a long time for the material they had sought. Now, that's some of the concern that we've heard from other governors and other state officials wondering whether or not politics is at play. Obviously, we know that Florida is going to be a key state. And we did speak to a Trump administration official who said that, you know, President Trump is very attuned to what Florida wants. And he knows the importance of the state electorally for him going into 2020, 29 electoral votes, the largest swing state in the country. That is something that is a big concern for several governors who feel that maybe the 2020 election and politics could be at play. Now, we don't have any concrete evidence that President Trump is ordering FEMA to give Florida what it wants just because he's considering its impact on his election. But we have seen some anecdotal evidence of Florida getting what it wants, of the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, being on the phone with the president daily, and even officials in Florida saying that that relationship, that close relationship has helped them to be able to get access to things that other states have not been able to, to get so far. Can resources be donated from one state to another? I know the New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, has promised to send any ventilators received from the federal government to wherever in the country they're needed most once the crisis in New York has been contained. Is that a model that can realistically work? Well, in theory, it could work. Ventilators, unlike most of the other products within this strategic national stockpile, can be reused, can be sent from state to state, can be sent back to the federal government when they're no longer needed. But uh, in practice, we have seen sort of this Hunger Games situation where every state is competing for the material and no one wants to be the governor who does not get the material that's needed, even if it means asking for more than you currently need and thinking about the future and maybe not being so willing to cede your position to another state who may have more dire need at the very moment because you don't know what the future holds. You don't want to be the governor who gave away your ventilators. And then you have an outbreak that peaks again in a few weeks. And all of a sudden you're having trouble getting those ventilators back. So we have seen states competing on the private market for the same product, building up the price. And uh, there's no sense that that spirit of camaraderie and cooperation is um, at play. I just want to address some of Trump's response to all of this. He has repeatedly cast doubt on the need for certain equipment. Notably, he said last week in regards to some states seeking high numbers of ventilators, he said, I don't believe you need 40,000 or 30,000 ventilators. You know, you get into major hospitals, sometimes they'll have two ventilators. And now all of a sudden they're saying, can we order 30,000 ventilators? So has that kind of messaging out of the White House hindered the ability of hospitals to actually get what they need? Well, according to the state governors and the hospitals, yes, they feel like the president has not taken this seriously enough, that there has not been enough sort of federal and presidential focus on this issue, that there have not been enough 
people early on willing to say, yes, this is going to be a major problem. We are going to need all of these ventilators. This is a life or death issue for thousands, potentially tens of thousands of Americans. And for that reason, we want to be sure that we are getting all the ventilators that we can, that we're using all the authorities of the federal government, including the Defense Production Act, which the president was reluctant to use. So several hospital officials and several governors have said that they are concerned that the president was not taking this seriously enough and did not did not realize or did not want to publicly acknowledge how bad this could be and how many ventilators could be needed and how small in relation the federal stockpile would be compared to the actual need. And that is something that is really being drilled home at this point by some of these officials who said that this is going to be a major problem and we need to have all the federal resources possible thrown at this problem as quickly as possible. And a lot of them do knock the president for not acknowledging that from an earlier point. There's another means to procuring resources, and that's the government's use of the Defense Production Act, as you mentioned. First, explain to me what that act is and what it enables. Well, the Defense Production Act is a war era act from 1950 during the Korean War in which it allows the federal government, it allows the president essentially to take some control over the private industry to order them, to incentivize them, to provide materials that are needed in the middle of a national crisis, national emergency, a war, if a private company needs to provide things that the federal government cannot build on its own, whether it's medical equipment, whether it's military equipment, the the president has the authority in the middle of a national emergency to compel some of these companies, whether it's compelling them to to prioritize certain contracts, like contracts for the government over contracts that they would fulfill in in the private sector, putting the federal government at the front of the line for some of these materials, or even going a step further to take control of the supply line in the private company and essentially order them to build certain things, order them to manufacture certain things that are needed by the federal government. Now, the government would pay them for those materials, but the private sector would be forced essentially to do the government's bidding. It's a very broad power that's given to presidents, and it's been used on occasion. President Trump was somewhat reluctant to use it, but it is a power that allows the federal government to take pretty strong control over a private industry and order private companies to manufacture certain goods that are needed in the middle of a national crisis. And so far, he's only used this to get GE to make ventilators, or has he used it in another way? He has said multiple times that he has invoked the Defense Production Act, that he is invoking it, but at the same time, the administration is relying on some of these companies to act voluntarily instead of being forced. And the federal government and the White House have said that all of these companies have been willing to comply. So he said that he was going to force General Motors to use this act to build uh, ventilators, but it's not clear whether or not he actually did that or whether or not General Motors was willing to move more quickly once he publicly said that he was invoking this act and signed a document saying that, you know, that this company was being compelled to build these things. The president came out the next day and said, all of a sudden, you know, General Motors has been very helpful and they've been very cooperative and all of the companies have been willing to voluntarily do what we've asked them. So I haven't had to use the act. So it's been unclear as to whether or not the president is using the powers in the act, but uh, he has threatened it. And there are several private companies that are building things and manufacturing things for the coronavirus response at the urging of the federal government. 
Why would Trump be reluctant to use this? What's the advantage to companies or to the federal government for voluntary compliance versus being forced under the Defense Production Act? It's really more of an ideological issue. Republicans, conservatives don't like the idea of big government or government taking over uh, private industry. It speaks of socialism. And President Trump has said publicly that, you know, we don't like nationalizing companies. He, he talked about Venezuela and said that it doesn't work out so well. So it's really more of an ideological issue. He has not wanted to sort of infringe on the rights of private companies if possible. He'd rather have those private companies do this voluntarily. In terms of practically, I'm not sure how much of a difference it makes, but that has been the ideology that the president and his his advisors have embraced, hoping that they could get the private sector to do what they want the private sector to do without having to use the strength and the power and the compulsion of the federal government. Now, this crisis, unfortunately, isn't going to be over anytime soon. Does reporting indicate that most states will eventually have what they need to fight this virus in their communities? Well, right now, it's not looking that way. The The Post reported recently that the federal stockpile is essentially depleted, that there are not the required pieces of equipment that all of these states are asking for. And this comes as several states have only received a fraction of what they've asked for, and they've tried to compete on the private market, and there just aren't the materials on the private market. The prices are going way up because demand is far outstripping supply, and things like ventilators, which the government is saying are being built at a record clip, just aren't ready at this point. And we're getting close to the point where several hospitals in several states are saying that they are running out of what they need. And it's not clear how this very major issue, this very life or death issue is going to be resolved over the next couple of weeks, just because right now demand is way higher than the supply. And there's no sense from the federal government that they are able to meet that supply, even as uh, private companies and even other countries try to help supply some of this material. It looks like we could be in for a pretty rough couple of weeks in which some hospitals and some states may not have all that they need in order to treat the patients that are coming in with symptoms of coronavirus, just because the stockpile is very short on supply and the ability to to supply those materials is being very much outpaced by the demand for those materials. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? The Washington Post has all of the information you need to stay on top of the latest coronavirus news. Sign up for our coronavirus newsletter to get our latest reporting and FAQs to keep yourself safe. Any article you click in the newsletter is free to access. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. The Post is also offering live coverage and stories with critical health information for free every day on our homepage and at WashingtonPost.com slash coronavirus. And of course, you can also use the Washington Post's podcasts to stay informed without being overwhelmed. They're always free online or on any podcast app. You can find them all at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. And all the links I just mentioned are available in the episode description. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the wonderful Carol Alderman with help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. 
Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.